0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I have this book right in front of me, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. By Jeremy Peters, who uh, is, uh, has been covering national politics for the New York Times contributed to MSNBC and is out with this new book. So first of all, congratulations on the book and welcome to the podcast, Jeremy.
1: Thank you, Charlie. I'm glad to be on. As you know, I'm a loyal, faithful listener.
0: Well, okay. And in, in terms of conflicts of interest as well, um, I am a blurber. I actually have blurbed your book. So this is, this is what's actually on the cover of your book. Yeah. Peters has written the definitive account of the devolution, pronounce it that way? The, the, the devolution of the GOP into full metal Trumpism in searing detail. This was painful, including the faithful role of Sarah Palin. He documents how Trump tapped into the suspicion, anxiety, anger, and cultural grievance that has been festering for years on the right. So that's my review.
1: That was so—let me tell you, when I read that, when you me, it, it, it delighted me. So thank you. To have your endorsement really means a lot.
0: Well, let me tell you what I was actually thinking about when I was reading your book and when I when I wrote that. There are so many people who have written about what happened to conservatives. I'm one of them, you know. What's going on? Where are they all going? But I, I keep coming back to something that Jonah Goldberg wrote like almost 20 years ago. I think he wrote it back in 2003, where he described how when people from the media would – write about conservatives, it was a little bit like sort of gorillas in the mist. He called it conservatives in the mist. There was there was sort of a <laughs> nature documentary vibe, who are these strange creatures out there? Let's look at their habitat. And it was always sort of an alien, like, you know, what are you people? Where did you come from? And you have, in, in contrast to that, Jeremy, because I followed your stuff for so long, you actually have spent enough time in the mist that I think that you you understand it at a level that I don't get from a lot of writers. You know, as I was reading this book, I was going, yeah, damn, that's right. He's cut through the shit, and this is what's going on. So that, that's one of the things I really like about your book.
1: I really appreciate that, because as you know, nuance is not something that many people in the blue checkmark mark crowd take as they should it's 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 very difficult to treat people you disagree with politically as as human beings right. um, in in today's age okay
0: so let's let's end the mutual admiration society for a moment before we get into all of this um, and and again what your book describes is is the fact that you know this has been trump's party for a very very long time which has implications for whether it will stay trump's party even without trump the, the fact that that he inherited a party that was already, you know, that let me as, as I've described it before, you know, the dysfunction was a pre-existing condition, which you make mm-hmm. very clear. So let's talk about what happened yesterday, where Mitch McConnell, after being asked whether it was appropriate for the RNC to call January 6th legitimate political discourse and to censure Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger.
2: Well, let me give me my view of what happened January the 6th. And we're all we're here, we're here, we, we, we saw what happened. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from mm-hmm. one administration to the next. That's what it was. With regard to the suggestion that the RNC should be in the business of picking and choosing Republicans who ought to be supported uh, traditionally, the view of the national party committees is that we support all members of our party, regardless of their p- positions, on some issues. Do you
0: have confidence in her, laura McDaniel, as chairwoman
2: of the committee? Uh, I, I, I do, but the, the issue is whether or not the RNC should be sort of singling out members of our party who may have different views from the majority, that's not the job of the rNC
0: okay so Jeremy Peters what what is your take on all of this I mean we've seen this before right Mitch McConnell has broken with Trump before but then he voted to acquit him in the impeachment trial and he he's refused to rule out supporting Trump 2.0 in 2024 so give, right. me, your, give me your take on that it, are there like tiny hairline fractures in in the verse?
1: yeah and I you know I think they they always have been but it's in listening to Mitch McConnell there, it's almost uh, as if he's speaking from some type of lost civilization. I'm reminded of the, the, what something Stuart Stevens once said to me, of course, you know, Romney's chief strategist from 2012, who's written uh, about his own break with the Republican Party. It's as if it's, you know, just artifacts from the Mayans or the Incas or something. The, the, the party that Mitch McConnell is describing is gone. And on the one hand, I understand that that's the party as he wishes it would be, you know, this this party where the Republican National Committee is not dominated by Donald Trump. But the party that Mitch McConnell actually has is the party of Trump. And there's no no hairline fracture at the moment long enough, uh, big enough that I can see in the party that is going to shake Trump's hold on it. I think things can change, obviously, and and I don't have a crystal ball, but the book is called Insurgency for a Reason. Right. And that's because, like, the, the modern history of the Republican Party is a history of insurgent populist conservative candidates, politicians who've come along and destabilized party leadership in a way uh, that culminated with Donald Trump. I mean, we we go back to Pat Buchanan, go back to, to Sarah Palin and the Tea Party. And Donald Trump is, is the manifestation of all of that. And Charlie, how many National Review editorials, how many Wall Street Journal op-eds, how many Mitch McConnell statements exactly like this denouncing something Trump has done have, have we lived through? And taking this a step further to what Mike Pence said, which is directly related to McConnell's comments, um, when Pence finally also called Trump out for the first time, um, in, in, in basically five years. Okay. So Mike Pence told the truth. That's, that's easy. He was exactly right. When he said Donald Trump is wrong. I could mm-hmm. not have overturned the election. What good has telling the truth done any Republican lately, politically speaking, I can't, I can't think of it. Well, this is the thing that you know.
0: I think it was David from first said you know back in twenty twenty twelve that. The uh, Republican Party doesn't have a leadership problem. It's got a followership problem. And you're right. Uh, it doesn't really matter what Mike Pence says or what Mitch McConnell says or what the editors of National Review say. As long as the base is totally into all of this, is into Trump or Trump adjacent to or br- embrace this insurgency, then nothing is actually going to change. So let's go back to all of this. And and again, I, I think, you know. This is painful stuff for me to read because I keep asking myself, how did I not see this at the time? But Mm. one of the things that really jumped out at me from your book was really the significance of Sarah Palin, who, interestingly enough, is back in the news with Mm -hmm. your newspaper this week. Sarah Palin just will not go away. So you describe her nomination um, as vice president as the tip of the spear for the emergence of voters who are obsessed with cultural resentments rather than economic issues that had dominated the, the politics. And, and, I, and I think that this is one of the key things, that, one of the key insights in your book that I thought was, was so strong, where you, you, you point out this long-term transformation of the Republican Party in which the style of politics is overpowered, suffocated any remnant of substance. And she really was kind of the st- uh, the tip of the spear. So talk to me about the significance of Sarah Palin in what's happened to the Republican Party.
1: So that quote, tip of the spear, actually comes from Donald Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, who has a long history in the Republican Party, working for a very diverse set of candidates uh, from the populist right to the establishment. Pat Buchanan, Bob Dole, those were his clients. And and he was the one who pointed out to me that, that Trump actually had been watching Sarah Palin quite closely for longer than we knew in the 2010 era of the Tea Party's dominance. But going back to how Sarah Palin became the figure uh, she was in that era after uh, McCain nominated her, Palin was more like the average Republican voter than voters were used to seeing, right? You have, uh, you know, John McCain, who had been in Washington for decades. You have people like like Mitt Romney, you know, who ran against McCain in the primary that year, uh, 2008 who is this, you know, this patrician blue blood governor of, of, of Massachusetts who had passed a universal health care law in that state. And all of a sudden, Sarah Palin comes along and she is, quote, one of us. And They lean into that in the McCain campaign. They lean into this, this every woman persona that she has. But it's deeper than just being, you know, your your neighbor or, you know, someone that you recognize from the, your kid's soccer practice or, or hockey practice, as it would be, I guess, in Sarah Palin's case. Um, she wore her resentments on her sleeve. Mm-hmm. And there's an, uh, a scene that I get into in the book about this this disparaging comment that Ted Stevens' son made. You remember Ted Stevens' right? Name? famous former senator from Alaska, elder statesman up there, uh, an institution where Stevens's son called the people from Palin's hometown, her region, called the Matsu Valley. Valley trash. And this, this stuck, it it was a real moment in Alaska's recent political history where people were outraged. I mean, it was, it was an early version of Hillary Clinton's deplorables comments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and Sarah Palin wore this as a badge. She called herself as as much as she, she resented it and was stung by it. She felt like it, it was a way of framing her appeal as a politician in an us versus them way. Those elites, those blue bloods look down on people like you and me. And that was really appealing. It was something that McCain never could capture. It was something, you know, that, that none of the Bushes could ever capture because of, who you know, where they came from. And people saw that in her and, she, you know, because she ran with it. She really leaned into that. Well, she also
0: used that in, that kind of inflammatory language, you know, Obama palling around with terrorists. Now, did she write that herself, or did the McCain people write that for her? Where did that come from?
1: So I'm really glad that you brought this up because I think this is this is part of what I meant when I said that you know we kind of we don't appreciate nuance uh, in in these political figures often. So Sarah Palin did not write. Right. Uh, And it was written into her speech, as I report into the book, by people at McCain headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. She Hmm. received the speech in an email as she was waiting on the tarmac, getting ready to go into a fundraiser in Colorado. And it's interesting and telling because it shows that the McCain people knew the emotions, uh, the, the, the buttons that she pushed the, and, and, and how to manipulate those emotions in voters who had a sense of cultural resentment and felt displaced in American society, they leaned into that as well. And they misunderstood, they underestimated the power of that. While they were leaning into it, it got away from them and that's something that McCain finally sees when that woman says to him at a at a town hall meeting Obama's a Muslim and he does the right thing and corrects her and says no ma'am he's not he's a family man he's a Christian something to that effect but that moment was only made possible because John McCain and his advisors let it happen by letting Sarah Palin run loose with some of these wild allegations. So Republican leaders have been playing with this sort of thing, kind of like, you
0: know, using people to kind of poke the bear. Um, George H.W. Bush using Lee Atwater, Mm -hmm. McCain using Sarah Palin but they always thought I keep coming back to the analogy and I apologize for using it again you know growing the baby alligator in the bathtub and
1: just thinking <laughs> they are going to be able to keep it you know it will never grow and eat you they always what constantly- did they say about Fox, someone said about Fox News it was an anonymous quote uh, after the 2020 <laughs> election it's like a chimp that that you raise from birth that rips your face off yes exactly exactly so they
0: were always but they always had the impression that they could keep that under control right that that was out there and they would distance themselves and as you describe it at some point you realize, wow, no, um, it's taken on a life of its own and we can't control it anymore.
1: So that's the history of the modern Republican Party. That's why the book is called Insurgency, Charlie, because I I start with Pat Buchanan. I keep coming back to Pat because he's a fascinating figure and I think a a proto-Trumpian character uh, like none other. And the way that the GOP establishment... Uh, underestimated him is in the book of uh, because pat shared with me an unpublished memoir that he had written about the 92 campaign when he challenged george hw bush the sitting republican president in a primary and almost beat him in new hampshire Mm -hmm. he didn't actually win new hampshire that year people misremember that part but buchanan almost almost beat him came within striking distance and he antagonized bush for months from the sidelines, even though he had no real shot at at overtaking Bush and winning the nomination. And he demands, at the end of it all, a primetime speaking slot at the convention. Mm -hmm. And the Bush people give it to him. Not only do the Bush people give it to him, as Buchanan spells out in, 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 in my book, they let him write a speech, and then they don't read the speech before he delivers it. And what does he deliver? The most memorable convention speech that anyone has given at a convention in the United States in in modern times—the famous Culture War speech, where he locked and loaded. Yep, he rails against homosexuality, the evils of it, and the evils of Clinton and Clinton. And it pushes all the crowd is on its feet. And afterwards, Buchanan is absolutely delighted, not only by the reception he got in the crowd, but by the disparaging way he is covered in the mainstream media by the attacks calling him crazy. And he has this line that I quote where he he, he cites a New York Times article that says, you know, something to the effect of Buchanan unleashed the crazies. And Buchanan's response, is, as I spell out, is, is just utter delight. That's exactly what he wanted. He wanted the establishment calling his people crazy because he knew how motivating that was. Just, just as Sarah Palin knew how motivating that, that that same sentiment was
0: well and he he knew where the buttons were as as, as you point out he he played to conservatives who hated the idea of having to press one for english which i don't I mean that really was an obsession for a long time who knows why but or, or <laughs> people who think that their kid was denied a spot at college because of affirmative action so affirmative act, he understood that you know the race card um was a potent issue back in 1992 he understood um you know how powerful that was. That affirm, and this was one of his, his his wedge issues, right? That he thought because George H. W. supported an affirmative action law, and he figured, you know, that that's that's going to be my go. That's going to be my go issue.
1: Exactly, and this is another thing that people don't remember about Buchanan, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book is to try to shed light on some of these episodes and present them to readers in a way uh, that that will seem fresh because Buchanan's campaign, while it was very America first, right, he, he took that slogan. And in fact, to this day, has a piece of stained glass on his coffee table at his home in McLean, Virginia, that says America first. He railed against trade and, and immigration and all that. But the reason he got into the race, as he explains in the book, is Affirmative action. He was angry at George H.W. Bush for signing a civil rights law that extended affirmative action programs. And that was a straw that broke the camel's back for him. So it was this you kind know, of white grievance that was propelling him then in, in a way that, uh, of course, is is very, there's a straight line from it, you know, straight through to Trumpism and, and his campaign crusade against illegal immigration in 2015 16 so let's go to another
0: uh, incident you describe in your book that foreshadowed trumpism the ground zero mosque issue Mm -hmm. and how that played out because i would kind of forgotten that and reading your book that really was kind of one of those you know if, if people had been paying attention maybe they would have understood what was going on so tell me about the ground zero
1: mosque issue the Ground Zero Mosque issue uh, bottled up inside it were all of the emotions, the the, the, the xenophobia, the the othering, um, the what you saw spill out of the the first part of the Obama administration, where you know there were people who, in very very sinister tones, presented Obama as this un-American figure who was undermining the government from within and the ground zero mosque for people who don't remember was the nickname given to an islamic cultural center that was proposed for construction near the site of the world trade center it wasn't a mosque it was the equivalent as the developer explains to me in the book of a jewish community center or a ymca except for it would be muslim not christian or jewish But its proximity to ground zero and the fact that an uh, an imam was its public face made people's minds run wild with delusions. And many of the people who ended up involving themselves in the campaign to stop this mosque, crucially, were people who ended up planning and running Donald Trump's presidential campaign or advising him in the White House. And these are people like Roger Stone, people like Steve Bannon, Dave Bossy, Sam Nunberg, who was an early Trump advisor who later left under various controversies. And Robert Mercer was the money behind some of this, some of the advertising to try to stop the project. And then Donald Trump got involved. And this was before he was ever really involved in Tea Party politics. Hmm. It was before the birther stuff, but you can see how this showed him how powerful an issue like fraudulent claims about Obama's birth certificate uh, would become a really... It's a very resonant issue on the far right. Yeah, this,
0: is, this is where you connect the dots because you, you write that the line between this this uh, community center fight and Obama's birth certificate is short and fairly direct and much of it played out on the airwaves of Fox News. I mean, you have the whole picture there. You have this issue, Donald Trump, uh, You know the, the birtherism, the conspiracy theory, and of course the role of conservative media.
1: I mean, it all
0: begins to take shape.
1: Yeah, and Breitbart in particular. And Trump wasn't necessarily political at the time. And I asked him about this in my interview with him. I said, what did you see in this? How did you know that this would be an issue that would get you so much attention? And the answer was revealing it wasn't what I expected, though. He did didn't necessarily see it politically, right? Because we forget he's not an ideological person. He is what that chapter, the name of that chapter is the popularist, which is a direct quote from Trump actually in his own mangled uh, version of the English language where Steve Bannon is explaining to him how he is a, Trump is a populist figure in in the greatest American tradition of populism. And Trump says, yes, yes, I'm a popularist. Uh, Of course, getting the word wrong, but he was right. He really was about his popularity, all about enhancing that popularity, doing what was popular. And he said to me about the Ground Zero mosque, the people didn't like it. And he was right. The polls showed that the people overwhelmingly did not like it, and so he latched onto that because he saw you know, he was he was drawn to it on a personal level, uh, of course. But he saw that so were a lot of other people. So
0: you, you have a, a lot in the book about the role of Fox News, the role of the conservative media, and the rise in the presidency of of Donald Trump. But I wanted to focus on you know your description of of his relationship with Rush Limbaugh, because I really think um, that that. That there's really something there about the the attitude of Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh's decision to support Trump, but also the the way you describe, you know, that the, the Limbaugh had really pioneered the conservative as outraged victim. That this really is this attitude, this style, telling Trump why he should never make a deal with Democrats. So, so talk about what what Donald Trump picked up from Rush Limbaugh.
1: Donald Trump picked up from Rush Limbaugh a sense of, if you told your audience that certain elements of American society, respectable institutions like the media, government, academia, were the enemy, that that really worked. And there is a scene that I describe in the book that happens right after Trump is elected. It's during the transition in 2016. Trump invites Limbaugh to Mar a Lago. Now, they weren't particularly close before then. I don't actually know that they had ever met before. But Limbaugh says to Trump, and this is so significant, it's so fascinating to me when Trump told me the story because Trump is not an introspective guy. He is not the type to give credit to others for shaping his worldview other than maybe Roy Cohn, right? So he tells me this story about Limbaugh and how Limbaugh told him, never cut deals with Democrats. Don't do what the Bushes did because the Democrats will always screw you. They will never give you any credit and it will never be enough. They will always hate you. That, in essence was Donald Trump's governing philosophy for the four years that he was president. He didn't cut deals with Democrats. He, he was tempted to at times, remember, over things like right. the Dreamers. Or, uh, but he never did because ultimately the people around him and Trump himself knew that they wouldn't get credit for it, that they had to keep the base happy. They had to grow the base. That was always, the, you know, this was a tension in the administration back then, but The side that always ended up winning out was the side that knew that Trump was probably never going to win over the mushy middle because those people hated him. Uh, Who who was going to come out, turn out for him? The people on the right, the people who who hated the Democratic Party. And those are the people that were Trump's loyalist constituency.
0: OK, so, we you know, we we talk um, and, and you write about this and, and we've talked a lot about the base and what the base believes and and how, in fact, Pat Buchanan tapped into the base and uh, Rush Limbaugh tapped into the base as you know, conservative media. This may be like a circular question, but why is the conservative base the way that it is? Was it always like this? Or is it a product of the conservative media? Do you know what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. Is the conservative media a reflection of something that was always there, or um, is the base shaped by uh, what the conservative media became and morphed into over the last several decades? What, what do you think? How do you how do you how do you parse well, that? I out? love that. I love
1: that question because yeah. it's, it's so philosophical. Right? Yeah. But I think, well, I'll start at a. There's this paragraph in my introduction where I'm discussing a – I got this from a documentary, an old documentary from the 1960s looking at the John Birch Society. Mm -hmm. And Charlie, I I was blown away by how many of the slogans and the issues are the same as they were back then. I mean there are stickers saying support your local police. Yeah. That they're flying a flag outside their house, the Gadsden flag, which of course the Tea Party took up and used as its banner with the "Don't Tread on Me" coiled up snake. That it's so 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 much of this mistrust of of government, um, this notion that li- like liberals hate law and order, and I could go on and on. But yeah. these 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 divisive cultural wedge issues, they were always there, right? Like, what was the solution to to dealing with Cuba and the communists? Nuke them. You know, I mean, it's always like very simple black and white answers for very complicated problems. What do you do with rioters and, and looters? You shoot them. And this stuff is still very palpable today in our in our political culture. So, yes, elements of it were always. And race, of course. Yes. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Like yeah. <laughs> that's it's, that's exactly right. So you, you get all this together. It's there. It's It's under the surface, I don't even know if you could say it's under the surface. I think it, the answer is it was diffuse enough before social media, before cable news, and kind of the unifying force that all of that is in our modern media culture that it couldn't organize incredibly effectively beyond something like the John Birch Society or a Barry Goldwater candidacy. So the image
0: that's coming to me as, as we're talking about this is is the man riding the elephant. And the elephant is this massive thing. And the man at some point begins the the Republican uh, intellectual leadership or the GOP establishment convinces itself that, that it's in charge, that it is guiding all of this, when Other people um, came along and realized, no, you know what, that's that's an elephant. And if you uh, poke it this way or give it these incentives, it's going to go in a completely different direction. But that that much of what we think of as modern republicanism was really sort of just a gloss on something much bigger and stranger that people like Pat Buchanan intuited, but that people like George Bush didn't really fully grasp. You
1: agree, right? Well, people like Pat Buchanan and Buchanan explained this to me, and then somebody who worked for him, worked with him very closely in the '92 campaign, explained this to me. That during the Cold War, there was that unifying sense that the yeah. Soviet Union is this great evil that we all have it's to easy. oppose, right? Mm-hmm. As you, if you're a Republican, and it's th- that's where you get Reagan and the evil empire from, right? And so the less. Popular parts of the Reagan Republican ideology, the the cutting taxes for corporations, deregulating, um, which you know, less popular may be the wrong way to describe that, but but not populist by any means, not not popular with with the masses, right? I you don't win elections based on that kind of stuff. That's a th- those are donor class fixations, and once the Cold War is gone as a unifying, as, as something you know, something to rally around, uh. What are you left with? You're left with like an economic policy that a laissez fair economic policy that doesn't really appeal to the average voter. I mean, there's there's no constituency for that kind of stuff,
0: no. And I think that was becoming increasingly clear. You know, I mean, i I was good friends with with Paul Ryan, but Paul Ryan's uh, economic vision had nothing to do with a party that was increasingly becoming kind of the Walmart blue collar uh, party. So as, as you point out in the book, so the party used to have these three legs of conservatism, social conservatism, economic conservatism, national defense. And you quote a, a Republican strategist named Todd Harris saying that, you know, there's now a fourth leg. Now it's all about attitude. Mm-hmm. This is stylistic
1: conservative.
0: What does that mean?
1: So that is basically that, the, that leg for the moment, is Trumpism. It's all about attitude. It's about aggression, punishing and pummeling your enemy, ripping the Democrats face off. That was something that became clear to me, as I report in in, in the book, when Newt Gingrich was challenging Mitt Romney for the Republican nomination in 2012, you had Newt, uh, crushing it in these debates, uh, you know, excoriating the moderators, uh, t- t- telling them that they were essentially you know fake news before that term uh, was popularized by Donald Trump. And the audience loved it because they wanted to see somebody who could really take the fight to Obama. And Mitt Romney wasn't going to do that. As I quote one of Mitt Romney's aides saying, Mitt is not the guy who's going to rip the other one's face-off. If you want that, you know, he's not. you're not going to get that from him. That's the kind of candidate that Roger Ailes wanted, of course. He wanted somebody in the arena, uh, duking it out with the libs. And when Trump took over, he gave them that, but he also made it a template for other Republicans to win, or at least the, many Republicans started to think that that was the way you could win. And then you start to see that same Republican strategist who I quoted saying that you know the stylistic conservatism is the fourth leg. In the book, I describe how he won for his candidates by emulating Trump. He's the guy who helped make that that famous ad from 2018 with Brian Kemp who now, of course, Rhino yeah, Brian yeah. Kemp, um, who back then was talking like Trump on immigration, saying he he was going to ride around Georgia in his pickup truck rounding up illegal immigrants. So that's, <laughs>
0: yes, it
1: uh, all comes full circle.
0: It does come full circle. Now, uh, we, we both know that there are folks on the left who think that uh, one of the great cardinal sins is any suggestion of both sides ism. But You know, at some point, though, how did the the Democrats and the left play into all of this? So you have a Republican base that just wants to attack and tear down the left. But what is it in the left that that triggers them? And the reason I'm asking this, of course, you know, I mean, I, I come from this world and I just remember the period where. Where the you know Democrats did seem radically disconnected with um, a lot of average voters, including blue collar voters, and their their contempt um, for them and for their values was palpable, and in a way opened the door. I mean, this there's there's basically there is two aspects to this that that yes, you had the Buchananites who went through that door, but that door was opened by a Democratic Party that increasingly didn't sound like harry truman anymore it sounded like i don't know and i I think of the george mcgovern period as one of the turning points but uh there was there was they they made themselves a a juicy target and some of them continue to do so and i think in part because they're in a bubble and they they kind of don't know Mm -hmm. how they sound you know what i'm getting at here i mean i know exactly what what you're getting That's,
1: that's absolutely right it's a bubble And it's a bubble that gets reinforced, I think, by a lot of bad ideas on social media or misunderstandings of what voters actually want, what issues they they care about um, and what's going to motivate them to come to the polls. It's the same problem that I spell out in the book that the Republican Party had. They weren't listening to their voters. And I think if you look at the way that Democratic governors from New Jersey to Connecticut to, to New York are now finally getting the message on COVID mandates, it's the same thing. It, I don't know if it's going to be too little, too late, Interesting. But the Republicans have figured out that this is where the voters are. And I sent it to a Democratic strategist when I saw it because it was such a, a powerful ad. And, and he agreed with me that it's a Republican ad about kids in schools mm-hmm. or not in school, I should say, behind their computers, not able to go into the classrooms. And it's very melodramatic, but it shows the kids basically being forced to stay home while politicians and celebrity. I saw
0: being- that. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's. Kim
0: tweeted about that.
1: It's yeah. really powerful. That's probably where I heard about it.
0: Actually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but um, it's it's very powerful, and it's it rings true for no matter what you know. And there are probably Democrats out there who don't want to hear this, but that is absolutely ringing true with uh, with people who would not consider themselves Republicans, and this is part of the reason why Glenn Youngkin won. And many Democrats didn't want to hear this either at the time, but it's absolutely the case that people were able to see past the baggage, the the ugliness of the, the xenophobia and, and the sometimes outright racism of, of a lot of Republican messaging these days um, and, and vote for somebody like Youngkin because they didn't see him that way. Uh, and they liked that he was saying that he's going to, put their kids back in school. That's just how people, I think right now are just so fatigued and Democrats have a, many Democrats, as as some of my colleagues have written about at the Times, have a a higher tolerance for some of these, these COVID restrictions. And it's become a part of their lives that they have willingly accepted. But that's not that's not America. That's not most of America. It's not, it's not middle America. And I think inside your bubble, it's hard to see that. Well, the, and
0: the Democratic governors are seeing it. So I want to talk about the, your, your subtitle of your book. So the, the title is Insurgency. The, the subtitle is How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. What about that? What, what do you mean mm-hmm. when you say they
1: got everything they ever wanted? Maybe just a touch of writerly hyperbole there, but, <laughs> <Okay>. uh, but, <laughs> but I think that's the bargain that Trump made with conservatives. That's why you have Mike Pence on the ticket, which of course, looking at Mike Pence's political fortunes right now is, is, is rather ironic um, and probably not lost on him, is Trump said From the beginning, as I report in the book, that he was going to give social conservatives, evangelicals, everything they wanted. There's a chapter in there called Give Them What They Want. And Mm -hmm. it's a direct quote from Donald Trump to Mark Short, Pence's chief of staff at the time, where he's explaining his insecurity about his relationship with the evangelical crowd. And his solution to that, of course, is to give them everything they want because he wants them coming back to him. Mm-hmm. And they did. But it doesn't start there. It started with something that no other Republican presidential candidate had done before, which is to give them essentially a receipt. He gave them that list of judges. As, as one, Marjorie Dannenfelser, an anti-abortion activist, explains to me, it was their, assur- their insurance policy that he would not nominate his sister to the Supreme Court. Right. And it worked and it was utterly transactional, right? And that's what, so he put down in writing what he was going to give them and then he delivered it. And now we're looking at a Supreme Court with three new Trump appointees who are very conservative, who are poised to act on a number of cases that will almost certainly restrict abortion rights and expand gun rights in a way that I think horrifies a lot of liberals who didn't see the power of making promises like that to Republicans.
0: So, uh, going back to this question of this new GOP, you you quote uh, the pollster Tony Fabrizio, who who coined the term "Dennis Miller Republicans," which I thought was interesting. He told you that there's now something called he called the Infowars Republicans. So, who are they, and how how important are they for Republicans?
1: So this is actually something I think that the Washington Post identified uh, in in its review of my book, which I, I thought to myself, huh, I wish I would have said it like that. You know how sometimes some people say, thing, say things about your writing and more clearly um, and elegantly than you do. So <laughs> what the, the book critic pointed out was that the story – of the Dennis Miller Republican, which is is something that Tony Fabrizio identified in 2007 as a type of like proto-Trump voter back then who was mad about illegal immigration and hated environmentalists. That person becomes a Trump voter. The story of my book is really how you get from there to the Infowars Republican. And the Infowars Republican is now, according to Trump's pollster fully 10% of the Republican electorate which is astonishing because he started st- documenting shifts in, in in the electorate back in 1997 after Bob Dole lost who you know he was he was at the time polling for Dole he looked at the electorate and found back then that there were roughly 5 to 10% of Republicans who described themselves as progressives well Those people are long gone. I mean, think about how antiquated that phrase is. It's it's like an oxymoron. Yeah. uh, Progressive Republican. So fast forward to 2021 and those people um, are replaced in number, at least, uh, by this 10 percent of Infowars Republicans who Fabricio defines as people who believe in I believe it's four or five conspiracy theories espoused by QAnon. So it's not like they believe that just one crazy thing that QAnon spouts, but four or five. And that, I mean, just that's that's something to really let sink in.
0: Well, and let, let's go back full circle um, because given all of that, even if Donald Trump leaves the stage tomorrow, they've unleashed all this. You described in another interview, you described it. The theme of your book is the way the Republican Party has led in these destructive elements over the years and empowered them to their detriment, and and whether or not Donald Trump um, is one of those Republicans. So, you you even suggest that it's not unthinkable that the Marjorie Taylor Greens and her supporters could decide they've had enough of Trump that they they that they're going to go off and continue this movement that that it will actually become more extreme with time as opposed to the fever breaking.
1: Right. And that's why I don't know if this book is the where we are in the story. It's certainly right. not the end of the story. Is it the middle? Maybe. Uh, but I, I just, I don't know at what point in the cycle of radicalism we are right now, because Marjorie Taylor Greene has is saying that she uses an awful lot when she's on podcasts, especially like Steve Bannon's podcast, where she says, "You know, I am the voter." Mm. She's not every voter, but she's a lot of voters in the Republican Party, and that's the type of you know populist fringe figure that the Republican Party has always struggled with trying to to t- tolerate and. The answer has always been to try to you know, bring them in, not alienate them, let them you know, share. But look at Kevin McCarthy dancing around how to deal with her, right? Uh, I would put my money on Marjorie Taylor Greene coming out on the winning end of, of a fight against the Republican leadership. I don't know where it turns out with Trump. I do think, and I keep hearing from people who are really plugged into that, that core Trump base that the vaccine thing is is really potentially harmful for him.
0: I think that's probably
1: true. Yeah, that, that the, the base is now... So far to his right that it may be, it may be too hard for him to, he may have, he may not have that touch. He may have lost the touch um, to deal with, to to command folks uh, in his base like he used to, you know, this is all, this is all just the speculation. Um, well,
0: but no, I, I do think it is heading in that direction. I'm going to have a story about what's happening in Wisconsin politics over the next couple of days that is right along the lines of your thesis here. The Marjorie Taylor Green wing of the, mm-hmm. the party becoming more and more empowered. Uh, because it has so much grassroots support, and once again, the establishment that thinks that it can somehow manage this or control mm-hmm. this um, is now finding out that, well, no, it's uh, this is like a prairie fire out of control. The book is Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party, Got Everything They Ever Wanted. It is a fantastic read, deeply insightful. Jeremy Peters is the author. You can read his work at The New York Times as well. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. Really glad to be here. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.